So when I was younger, when I was in Sunday school, I used to go to Sunday school as a kid. I went to church every Sunday. And when I was there, we would do something called sword drills. Now, is there anybody here who remembers a sword drill? You did sword? There are some folks in the room who did sword drills. All right, that's terrific. So the way it worked is you would have your Bible and you brought your Bible to church with you and you actually got credit for bringing your Bible back when I went to church uh, in Sunday school. You got credit for bringing it and you got points and you bring your Bible and then what you do is you would hold it up like this, and the teacher would then say, swords drawn. And you're like, yeah, I got my sword drawn. And then, and then, you're, and then the teacher would announce a reference. So it would be like Ephesians, no, we'll use this one, Hebrews 4.12. Ready? Go. And then you would rush to rip through your Bible, to find that verse, hoping that it's highlighted because that meant that you would find it faster. And then you would stand up in your seat. The first one who stood up would then read Hebrews 4.12 and you would get bonus points or something. I don't know what you got for that, all right? So you played sword drills. I think my teacher's favorite verse was this. It's up on the screen. It's Hebrews 4, chapter 12. It says this, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and it exposes our innermost thoughts and, de and desires. Uh, this morning, I want to say that the Bible is so much more than that. And so we're learning to live this way of Jesus, that, uh, uh, that there is a way that Jesus lived his life, and it's a way that we're inspired to live our lives. And when we live in the way of Jesus, uh, we will not only, we will, not only will it be a blessing to our lives, but we will be a blessing to others, right? And in that blessing, others will want to know how and, and why uh, they can be a part of this community of faith and to be part of these things that Jesus is doing. And so that's kind of our desire. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the Bible and Scripture and how that can help us in discovering this way of Jesus. So, but I want to say a few things the Bible is not, okay? The Bible first is not a rule book. It's not a, and these are going to be things that you may have grown up believing or or were taught, uh, it's not a rule book. The Old Testament was a rule book text. Uh, it, it, the Old Testament worked this way. It was do this and God will do this in return. Uh, Jesus, though, redefined the way of the, this way of thinking and uh, changed it from being a rule book. Paul made it clear that an over-reliance on the law would, um, uh, would put, actually was like living under a curse. The New Testament covenant established by Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament covenant and it no longer became a rule book text. So it, it is not a rule book. The second thing is the Bible is not a toolbox. It's not a toolbox. It has a lot of great information, a lot of great information about how to live a fulfilled life, but it is uh, about marriage and about parenting and all those kinds of things. But seeing the Bible as a toolbox for living is missing the point. It's more than information about life. It's, it's, uh, uh, if, if it were only a toolbox, it was only meant for information, it would be sold as an infomercial. And it is so much more than a magic bullet. Do we, are there even infomercials anymore? Are they still out there? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll have to look for that. But the Bible's not ever sold on one, right? Infomercial? Okay. 
The third thing the Bible is not, getting a little controversial now, the Bible is not a science book. Some pastors may say this, if you don't believe the world is 6,000 years old, then you don't believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Therefore, you don't believe the Bible and your faith is in jeopardy. Our faith does not depend on your interpretation of Genesis, and it doesn't depend on the Bible being scientifically accurate. Our faith doesn't depend really on the Bible at all. The first and second century Christ followers didn't even have a Bible as we know it. They had some texts, they had oral tradition, and they had letters that were passed between followers of these different churches. Our faith, according to Paul, is based on the resurrection. So it's not based on your interpretation. So the Bible is not a science book. And last, what the Bible is not, the Bible is not an easy answer book. The Bible and its history are not a simple or easy text. The Old Testament comes from a bunch of oral traditions. It is written across centuries by dozens of ancient scribes in an ancient time. And the New Testament was written by multiple authors with multiple goals, multiple styles and agendas and audiences. And so the Bible is deep and astounding and complex and difficult and challenging. And to minimize it, into an indexed answer book is treating it with far less respect and admiration than it deserves. So those are all the knots. Now, as I've shared those knots with you, don't worry. I believe the Bible is God-inspired, and I believe the Bible is perfect in what it communicates. That's a truth that I hold on to. But I have a second truth that goes along with that. So that first truth is that I believe the Bible is God-inspired, and it's perfect in what it communicates. The second truth is this, and let me kind of put those two together before you stone me. The second truth is that people can be idiots. <laughs> the first truth, the Bible is God-inspired and perfect in what it communicates. The second truth is that people can be idiots. And let me explain. I be, believe that the Bible's message is inspired and perfect in what it communicates to us. But there is a weak link in this, and that weak link is people. While the Bible is true and perfect, the people reading it, interpreting it, and using it are not. And so it is easy. It is incredibly easy to rip verses out of their cultural and literary context so that we can slap them onto a bumper sticker. And the Bible was never designed to be turned into a bumper sticker. It's also, there have been too many evils from modern sexism to slavery to genocide that can be and have been backed up by carefully selected passages of Scripture. And that has never been the intent or purpose of the Bible. So instead, we need to read the Bible with careful analysis of its context and acknowledgement of its complexity and a very strong dose of humility. So the Bible contains powerful moral authority, but it's not a weapon. It's, it's, it's point, uh, the Bible points to a fulfilled life, but it's not an advice manual. The Bible tells us where we came from, but it is not a history or biology textbook. And the Bible addresses many of life's biggest questions, but it's by no means an easy read. So to reduce the Bible to these ways of understanding is to spotlight little truths and miss the biggest truth. And so I want to talk this morning about that big truth from Scripture Jesus. So earlier this week, on Monday, I got to go to the Museum of the Bible. 
It's in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's fairly new. I believe it opened in 2017. And uh, I knew that I was going to be preaching this message. And so I was hoping on Monday for some incredible insights and ideas and thoughts that I'd be able to share with you about the Museum of the Bible. When we arrived, uh, we were there, uh, uh, the curator met us at the door, and the curator told us that uh, she gave us some insights about the different floors, she passed out maps, and then she suggested that we start on the fourth floor and work our way down instead of the first floor and work our way up. And so we were like, sure, she's the curator, she's the professional, we're going to do what she suggests and go to the fourth floor first. So we got in, did our coat check, got all to the elevators, went to the fourth floor. When we got to the fourth floor, the fourth floor is filled with hundreds and Bibles. They were in every nook and cranny of the fourth floor. And there was incredible information about the Bible. There were Bibles that were, were ornately designed and displayed under glass, and there were Bibles that were up on the walls and showing all the different translations of the Bible. They had displays talking about the history of the Bible. It was uh, how, how, how this, it, it had been collected over the centuries. How There were stories about how the Bible had been canonized or how it had been approved by church leaders. Uh, they talked about how it was transmitted from generation to generation, and all the different translations, all the way to modern translations, translations, there is actually, I looked it up on Amazon right there because I didn't believe it was real. There's actually a waterproof Bible. The pages are made of thin plastic and the whole Bible is waterproof for only like 49 bucks on Amazon. I was so tempted. I'm like, that is so cool, a waterproof Bible. And then I had to say, what would I use that for? So I did not, yes, when I'm, when I'm at the beach, I would, that's, brilliant. Maybe I will get it. So all of this was incredibly important information, but I have to tell you, I was bored out of my mind on the fourth floor. It was historical, trivial, Bible trivial pursuit. Just information about this book. And I thought, we have three more floors yet to go. <laughs> We're stuck on the fourth floor, and we have to get to our car at the first floor. But then we moved to the third floor, and here's where it changed for me. We got to the third floor. The third floor was divided into two sections, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And we walk, right? So we go into this room, the lights turn down, and I was hooked because they began to tell the story of the Bible. And what the story tells about this God of the universe and how God created and how God created humanity. And then it began, and it wasn't just, it was the story was what caught me, but then there was a light show. And so things started flashing and changing and moving, and we started following, and then we saw a burning bush, and it was really legit. It looked like a burning bush. And we followed this journey of the Israelite nation. And I was hooked because it told the why of the Bible. And we were standing in this room, and it was in the center of these people, broken people, and it talked about how the brokenness of humanity separates us from the God of the universe. The story of the Bible 
is that there's this big truth. And this big truth from the beginning to end of Scripture is about Jesus. And that there are layers and layers of depth and truth and revelation that can be found by studying Scripture. But the purpose of the thousands of words all point to this one big truth of Jesus. Now, have you ever been asked to summarize who you are? If you go onto Facebook, uh, when you sign up for Facebook, you remember back to the day you signed up for Facebook, they ask you to fill out your bio, right? And they'll ask you all sorts of questions, and then you get to put some information about yourself. Uh, mine on every social media platform, if you follow me, uh, on, uh, if, if we're not friends on Facebook, please, let's, let's be friends. Uh, or follow me on Twitter, and if you do, you'll see that the summary for me is this. You have no idea how far I'm willing to go to acquire your cooperation. Anyone know what that's from? It's a quote from Jack Bauer, 24. I always appreciated his stubbornness. You have no idea how far I'm willing to go to acquire your cooperation. So maybe you've been asked to summarize yourself at a job interview. So tell me about yourself. Or maybe you've been on a date and you were asked the question, so tell me more about you. In those moments, we try to find the best words to condense, to, uh, uh, to condense together our origin, our heritage, our personality, our character, our credentials, our strengths, and our likes and our dislikes all into a few words. It's challenging, and it always falls short. Here's some Twitter bios of people that I follow. Uh, one, this is a famous person. Their bio is husband, father, author, host. Does that summarize them? No. Here's somebody else. I'm not sure. Oh, this is a, uh, somebody on ESPN, I think. Wife, mother, sister, Virginia native, sports journalist and host, a lover of good stories, country music, and scary movies. Here's somebody else I follow. Famous person. You may know this one. Uh, a girl from the south side and former first lady. A wife, mother, dog lover, always hugger in chief. And then a friend of mine who's a pastor. He is a striving disciple of Jesus, a husband, a father, and a ninja. Now, to be honest, this only scratches the surface as to who these people are, what they do, and what their life is all about. And why is that? Because a few words, even a few chapters, or even an entire book or library of books cannot begin to encapsulate who you are. Now imagine trying to talk about the God of the universe. That was the Apostle John's responsibility when he decided to write a gospel that he titled John. Good idea. John wasn't interested, you'll note if you read through the Gospels, that John wasn't interested in creating a chronological order of telling an account of Jesus. He would tell you that if you want that kind of story, read, uh, read Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Because John sets out to describe who Jesus was and is. And he makes that very clear in the first chapter. He decides to use words to describe Jesus, the God of the universe. And where do you start when words are not enough? 
Because if it's challenging to describe you or me with words, how much more challenging would it be to describe the God of the universe? And so John chooses to go back to the beginning. So it's up on the screen. It's from John chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses and we're going to stop. I'm going to pause in the middle of this as a matter of fact. So it starts out, it says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now John begins by referencing an Old Testament phrase. He uses the words in the beginning. Anyone else? Where else is that found? Genesis, right? Chapter 1, verse 1. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at that in just a moment. The Word John says the word, and we'll talk about what that means, the word was at creation. The word is a translation of a Greek word or a Hebrew word, logos, of uh, the logos of God, and we're going to look at that. The logos of God, John says, was there, and the logos of God is here. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. The word, uh, the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And so John begins by talking about the beginning. And those who would be reading this would instantly be connected to Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, it's up on the screen, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. We're going to jump now back and forth between John 1 and Genesis 1, but let's stay right here in Genesis 1. So it says that God spoke and light existed. Now, when God spoke the word light, the Hebrews would understand it this way. They had this interesting idea, this special idea about words, that once a word was spoken, it had an independent existence. See, when we hear words, we know that words have to do with uh, you know, the way that the, the air is coming out of my lungs and going across my voice box, and I'm putting together sounds in a certain way that are triggering something in your brain so that that word has some kind of recognition, right? We get that? In the ancient Hebrews saw it differently. They saw that the word not only had a certain meaning, but the word had power. And that it went forth and did things. So when God said, let there be light, that God spoke a word and light existed. And light came forth at the speed of light. Isn't that good? 300 million meters per second that God spoke light into existence. And that word had went forth and it did things. And so light entered the world and it moved through the universe and it moved out throughout the universe like a ripple on a pond and it just kept expanding. And so God spoke a word into existence, and light went out in action. 
And so John, in John chapter 1, verse 1, is reminding those people who would read this of the creator of the universe. And the Logos already existed. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it often, is that, uh, that's funny, I'm saying, when I say what I say, you say that's funny, uh, is that repetition is a way to emphasize something. So I've said before, if your son or daughter is to touch a stove, a hot stove, you would not say no. You would say no, 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 right? It's meant to emphasize. Repetition emphasizes something. So throughout these verses, John is going to use emphasis. He's using the word logos throughout those first few verses and actually through the whole chapter there. John's making a point. Now, this concept of logos is this powerful, complex, and beautiful idea. It's a word that was shared by both Greek philosophers and Hebrew uh, or Jewish theologians. There's this, it's a really important word that almost all philosophical schools in ancient Greece would understand. It's basically this, is that the simplest way to explain it is this. Logos is the reason or unspoken rationale behind something. It was considered this universal reason. So logos is what brings order Logos brings purpose. Logos is the plan of the universe. Logos is kind of like the frame that everything is built around. It brings order and purpose and a plan. It sustains all that's in existence, giving it form. Now, in Hebrew thought, the logos is personal. It's this dynamic force of God's will. So when God says, let there be light, light ushers out and exists because God says it. It's this personal, eternal word in action. So when a word is spoken, like I said, it, it, it's an independent existence. It, it now exists because it's been spoken. And so God, John says, is the word. God is logos, responsible for the being of all things the universal reason for everything, the cause, the action, the word of God that was initially spoken by the prophets and the angels and Moses. And now John says, finally, the word is God, the son who we're going to see came to live on planet earth. Now, jump back to Genesis chapter 1 for a second. So the creation story works like this. There are six days to creation. There's seven, seven days in the story. The seventh God rested. In the first three days, days 1, 2, and 3, uh, three things happen. In day 1, it says that God speaks, and night and day, or light is light and night and day. Day 2, God creates sky and sea. Day three, God creates land and vegetation. In the first three days, days one, two, and three, God is in the business of forming. He's forming, putting things out there, framing together. Days four, five, and six. In day one, what was it? Day one was night and day. In day four, it's stars, suns, and moon. So on day one, God forms. On day four, God fills what he formed on day one. On day two, it's sky and sea. On day five, it's sea creatures and birds. So he created sky and sea, formed it, and now he fills it 
with sea creatures and birds. Day three was land. On day six, it's animals and humans. So God forms and God fills. John's making this connection again between John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. That the God, the, the word, the logos, is responsible for creating. And this logos creates reason and order and purpose. That there is this framing and there is this plan and there is this action and it is personal and it is powerful. And the eternal actor is putting all things into action. So if we can, Matt, jump back to John chapter 1 again. Sorry, this is, I'm throwing this at you. Is that it? So in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And He existed in the beginning with God. And God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And His life brought light to everyone. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. And now John gets to his point. After connecting his readers to the creation story and the order of the world and everything else, John now gives the defining statement of his writing this gospel. It's in John chapter 1, verse 14. It's up on the screen. So the word, the logos, the creator, the actor, the one who put all into existence, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And so John says to his readers, the one that put all of this together became a human being, and he was my friend. And he made his home among us, and it's filled. He's filled with love and faithfulness. And I saw him. I saw him. He is the ultimate revelation of God. He is the word of God, eternally acting to bring reason and order and purpose to a world. Louis Giglio, one of my favorite speakers said this about the incarnation, about this idea of, the, of Jesus becoming human being. He said that, that, that God decided to wrap himself in flesh. And then he says this, so that we could get a hold of him. That he became this, 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 this ultimate revelation of who God is, that we can get a hold of God, that he's the living picture of God's holiness and he holds all of creation together. So now in my last two minutes, I'm going to go back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 again. It's up on the screen. This is where we started. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That the Bible is not simply a collection of words about God, but it is a vehicle for communicating the idea, and this one idea in particular, 
that it is the word of God, independent, power-causing action, Jesus. It has, it has the incisiveness of a surgeon's knife, that the Bible reveals who we are and what we are not, that it penetrates the core of our moral and spiritual life, and that it demands and requires our decision. What will I frame my life around? That the big truth of the Bible is Jesus that there are layers upon layers of depth and truth and revelation to be found in studying that book. But the story of the Bible is Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God. God wrapped in flesh so that we could get a hold of God. And the purpose of those thousands of words is to point us to God's final word, Jesus Christ. I found this, it's in your bulletin, it's not on the screen, but it's in your bulletin, you can take it home with you. John Stott's quote, he says, We must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. See, because in Scripture we discover the way of Jesus that we, each of us, are in this process of conforming to the image of Jesus Christ, living the way of Jesus for the sake of others. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus leads us to live life here on planet Earth in such a way that it will bring blessing to the people around us. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at Scripture, looking at what the Bible has to say to us, and what the Bible can do to lead us to living this way of Jesus. Uh, will you stand with me for closing prayer? And so, God, I thank you for, I thank you, God, for this book. I thank you, God, for the words that are in it, not because of the stories, not because of the, the uh, truth, but, God, because it, communicates to us about a God that loves us like no other. And that you, eternal being, became a human being for us. And that you lived and died and resurrected so that we could live in right relationship with you and with humanity. And so, God, I pray for the men and women in this space and those who are part of this community who are not here this morning. God, that as we live our lives, that we would begin to look more and more like you. And I pray, God, that our study of Scripture and the stories that we read from it would, would remind us of the life that we can live. Making a difference in the world around us. So God, I pray now for each of us as we go here, go from here, that as we go out into this world that is desperate to know you, that we would know that we have opportunity to live in such a way that we would make a difference in the lives of the people we see at work and in our neighborhoods and in the grocery stores and in the gas station line. And God, we pray, I pray that for each of us that we would be inspired, inspired to communicate your truth to this broken world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just have a great day.